The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. This is Pastor Terry Jank from White Ridge Baptist Church, and I am sharing a sermon that was preached this past Sunday, February 24th, 2019. We just saw a video of a woman that was pleading her case, a non-believing woman that was saying, expressing her heart uh, of asking believing friends in her life not to give up on her. And uh, it was a bit of an edgy kind of confrontational uh, video. Some of the people might have landed a little bit guilt-inducing. For some, perhaps they don't think it applies because they don't really judge others. And others might have felt convicted and it reminded them of actual conversations that they've had uh, with people. <clears throat> But whatever your response is to the video, we chose to share it because it does contain some truth, uncomfortable truth, but truth nonetheless. And the truth is that every day we rub shoulders with people that are friends, family, co-workers, schoolmates. And in some way, um, we don't always share what we believe about their eternity, that Oftentimes, they are desperately seeking to fill up what Christ alone can fill in their hearts, fill it up with other stuff. And um, it's illogical that we would know answers to their dilemma, but not share about it. We hardly talk to God about them, and we hardly talk to them about God. doesn't seem logical. If we have been rescued from a burning house, if we have been healed of a deadly disease, if we have won the lottery, all helpful metaphors of our salvation in Christ, then we would want to, you'd think, help others who are in burning houses or living in poverty or inflicted with disease or are terminally ill. We who have found bread must tell others where to find that bread. It's logical. Uh, we want to have an earnest desire to share what we've found and who we've found with others. And so this theme today rounds out the, the sermon series that we have used in this first month of Sundays in this new address, 2405 McGillivray Boulevard, where we have moved to. And uh, we began four weeks ago when we studied the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is deserving of supreme love, and because of our distortion, because of our affections being affected by sin, instead of loving him with all our being, we love other things. We displace him with other loves. Next Sunday, we, the next Sunday, we talked about the greatest need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This idea of a healthy relationship has to be built on the Micah 6-8 remedy of justice and mercy and walking humbly. The next week we talked last week about our greatest calling to serve others. Jesus said he himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. In Philippians chapter 2, we were reminded that he didn't just do the outward duty of servanthood for 33 years on the earth and then offer his life as a sacrifice for sinners. He had the very nature of a servant, and that's what we want to, we want God to form our hearts in such a way that we are by nature servants. And then it's not duty-bound and begrudging and have to, but a loving service. And then today, it's only logical that we go full circle back to wanting to introduce others to this supreme love, this supreme God that 
is the creator and redeemer of our, of our lives and have them realign their distorted loves with him and heal. He, he can heal their brokenness even as he has begun to heal ours. Now in the video, the last question the woman asked was, what is, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And the question that I want to answer is, what is it? And uh, let's, let's let Jesus himself answer that question. In the last words that are recorded in the Gospels that he shared with us, they're found in Matthew 28. And I'd like to read with you now Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, where it says, Now the eleven came and went to Galilee, to the mountain to Jesus, which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the scripture that we want to talk about today. In his recent book, Why You're Here, John Stackhouse quotes the 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody when Moody said, God gave me a lifeboat and he said, Moody, save all you can. And then John Stackhouse adds in his book, is that why Christians are in the world to rescue people out of it? Lots of Christians think so. Others claim that the task of Christians is to conquer the world as gently as possible in order to bring it under the beneficial sway of Christian principles? Or is it to take over the world for Jesus? Or is it to be decent citizens in the world? And in a variety of ways, Stackhouse asks the question, what does it mean to be distinctly Christian in the world? Why are we here? What is our role as we engage with the world around us? In short, what is our calling? And he uses the word from the Latin vocare, calling or vocation. What is our vocation, the Christian vocation of everyone who professes to be Christian? And he says it is this, everyone, everything, everywhere, in every moment. That's the Christian vocation, every one of us, everyone, everything, everywhere, in every moment. No wonder Jesus, in the words that we read earlier from Matthew 28, uses the word all four times. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And behold, I am with you, Jesus says, always to the very end of the earth or the age. So the Great Commission is all-encompassing. We must remember that, that it's not just a great suggestion. It's the Great Commission. It is not something that the church does on the side. It's not an arm of the church. It's not an appendage to the real business. It encompasses everything that we are about. Neither can the Great Commission be reduced to a contractual model of sharing four spiritual laws and some prepackaged gospel presentation that has to be subscribed to. Contrary to how we often think, evangelism and discipleship are not separate enterprises. 
The church has only one commission. It's to make disciples. And discipleship, according to these words of Jesus, is bringing a person to Christ and then fully instructed and fully obeying. Now, by that definition, I think you'll agree that you and I are still being discipled as Christians. We are not yet fully instructed, nor are we fully obeying. And I hope every one of us can see that. If we're not on this discipleship path, then we have to ask, which path are we on? Some have called this cradle-to-grave discipleship. In our mission statement, we use two words to clarify what we mean by discipleship. Just to help it out, we say making and nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationships. Coming to faith in Christ is a very important step, a birth. But then that's just the beginning of actually being a disciple. But the entire process of coming to be born again and grow up in Christ is one, one process. So fulfilling the Great Commission is not one of many things that the church is doing. It's the only thing that the church should be doing. And under the banner of making disciples comes everything that God requires of us for loving him and loving all those around us, including worship of God. It's all part of discipleship. Now, according to the best New Testament scholar that I know, Donald Carson, the central idea of Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is the command to make disciples. It's one word in Greek, actually. And it's the only imperative in this passage. And the other three key words that are here are going, baptizing, and teaching. They are participles. And a participle essentially has the characteristic of acting like a verb and an adjective. It not only defines the action like a verb does, but it describes the action like an adjective. And so, in order to make disciples, we must be the kind of people that are a going people, a baptizing people, a teaching people of all cultures, all ethnos. A disciple, then, is one who hears of Jesus, converts to Jesus, and lives in obedience to Jesus. And the New Testament does not even conceive of a disciple that is not in the vocation of also joining in the enterprise of going and baptizing and teaching. That is what every disciple grows into, a person who is going and baptizing and teaching others what Jesus commanded. And as an aside, I I think I should mention right now that the idea that a new believer must be baptized by a pastor is simply not found in Scripture. Ideally, I think we should be baptized by our spiritual parents, our spiritual mother or father. And the person that was most instrumental in bringing someone to Christ should probably be the one that uh, goes through the water of baptism. And uh, it's just simply not a scriptural idea that it has to be a pastor. Equally legalistic is the idea that a pastor must lead communion or the Lord's Supper. This idea of a separation of clergy and laity is not found in Scripture in this way. Clearly, pastors have authority. But the idea of communion or baptism being matters of authority is not scriptural. They're not matters of authority. They're matters of fellowship in the faith community. And the church has made them into matters of authority. 
The idea that only pastors should baptize and lead the Lord's Supper communicates a theology which is the, the Latin word sacerdotalism, which is what the Roman Catholic dogma teaches. This comes from the Latin word for priest. And it teaches that in religious acts, there must be this special mediator between God and humans to perform such rites as baptism or Lord's Supper. But the Bible teaches that that we're all priests if we are coming to, if we've come to Christ. We are a priesthood of all of believers. We are First Peter 2 9 says that we're a royal priesthood. Revelation 5.10 pictures this whole entire group of us from all nations as a kingdom of priests that serve our God. And so there can be a lot of baggage that we can gather around our faith in Christ, lots of rules that don't necessarily apply. And we should not push them. They are legalism. Many years ago, Pat and I uh, knew a man and and met him, actually, uh, of the Navigators group called Leroy Imes. He wrote a book called Born to Reproduce. When we become Christians, we're born again. We're called infants in Christ. We desire the pure milk of the word. We drink from it and we grow up to the point where we, we become mature. And of course, one of the signs of maturity is this ability to reproduce. It's really in any kind of creature, organism, it's a ability to reproduce. We're able to share in the work then. And we do that by being a going and baptizing and teaching people. Some of us uh, were at the convalescent home of Winnipeg this past week, uh, visiting Alf and Marie Bell. I met Jane there as well, visiting her mom and she told me that they have rabbits in the home as pets for the residents. And that recently one of the rabbits uh, had little rabbits, little bunnies. That's what rabbits do. And it was reproducing. And uh, that's what all creatures do when they're mature. Is they, they're able to reproduce. And this is what it is in the kingdom as well. That as we mature, we, we become part of God's kingdom. And we start to build his kingdom in obedience to him. So let's just review some of the things that we've talked about so far and and make a, a few summary statements. First of all, what is the what is the great commission not teaching? The great commission is not just about evangelism and therefore it is not just about unbelievers. We as believers are still being discipled, learning more and growing more in obedience. And I'm so glad that our young adults is studying the Alpha program, which is a great presentation of the Christian faith and of Jesus himself. And as we do so with the hope of leading other people to faith in Christ, we ourselves are being discipled. Secondly, Great Commission is not just for people who are like us. We are sent to all ethnos, all ethnicities, all the people groups of this world, just as heaven will be populated one day with people from every tribe and family and language under heaven. So that is the scope of our discipleship. And that's one of the reasons why I love English conversation circles every Wednesday. We just love it. I get together and we make friends from other cultures and I get a, a better understanding of uh, how, how incredibly creative God is as he made all nations. Thirdly, Great Commission is not just for clergy, pastors, and evangelists. 
We are a priesthood of believers. Each of us is ambassadors of Christ, representing him in his love and truth with others. And so we together are the advertising of our ministry. If if you want to know what the strategy of White Ridge Baptist Church is to grow this church, this local family of believers, you are the strategy. Each one of us is, is responsible to go out and represent. And we represent and we share of the love of Christ and we share of the truth of Christ. Fourthly, Greek Commission is not primarily about people coming to church. It's about going into all the world to make disciples, crossing the street or crossing the ocean. We are ambassadors. And then fifthly, the Great Commission is not primarily about teaching Old Testament law or Baptist polity or church dogma. It's actually teaching, Jesus said, he said, teach everything that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus has taught, what he has commanded us. And if I could just take a moment to uh, plug a little commercial at this point in the message. Beginning next Sunday, March the 3rd, I'm looking forward to the first expository sermon series that we'll be doing in this building. And it's on the book of Galatians, Paul's epistle to the churches in Galatia, the province. And the title that I've given this sermon series is called Freedom, the, the Nature of True Religion. And here's what I've written on the back. You'll see this card in your bulletin, and there's more available at the Welcome Center to give to anybody else that you'd like to invite. It says, Our world is filled with RTDs, religiously transmitted diseases. To one degree or another, we have all been exposed to some strain of an RTD through contagious teaching and legalistic behavior. Come and join us in a journey of detoxification as we set forth the good news of free grace found in Jesus Christ, March 3rd to June 30th, every Sunday. That's what we're looking forward to studying. And the reason I insert that is because we can really bog, especially new believers, down when we, when we confuse the issues, when we start talking about things that are not central to the gospel of grace that Jesus Christ came and gave us. And so uh, I hope that the Galatians series is something that uh, reminds us of the solid foundation that our salvation is built on through Christ. So going back to the video, the last question that the woman asks in the video is, when's it going to happen? Well, I think that's part of the issue is we've made sharing our faith too much of an it. According to what Jesus teaches It is actually happening as we live our own path of discipleship, as we learn that we are meant to be a going people, taking the initiative in relationships, a baptizing people, where we point out people's need for conversion and cleansing, and then finally a teaching people where we pass on to others what Jesus has taught us, not just with our our lips, but with our lives. And so concluding today, I would like to share four simple lessons that I have learned over the years about sharing my faith. And I want to encourage you to to think about these things. The first point I'd like to make is that God is the evangelist, not us. 
God does not have a problem building an on-ramp into the lives of those that are open to receiving him. Someone has said that it is not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but the God of mission that has a church in the world. God is on the move and the church is always catching up with him. We join God in mission. This is such a relief to know that long before you ever even think to pray about someone or to go and talk to them or risk talking to them, God is already there. God is at work in their hearts and God is prompting you to open up your mouth and to share. You know, I, I just read recently of Ravi Zacharias's testimony, this great man of, of scripture teaching, apology, apologist and so on. And, um, he came from the caste of a Hindu priesthood and his parents wanted him to follow in that line of work. You need to remember that he grew up in India. India is a land of 330 million gods and they are that's the Hindu gods. And so he says in his testimony that the odds of him becoming anything but Hindu or becoming Christian particularly was 330 million to one. And yet he did. He, he came to Christ and is serving the kingdom of God now. So be in tune with God. That's the key. Be in tune with God in your own path of discipleship and in the, the people that he has around you. Start talking to God about which of those that are around you he is working in and he wants you to join him. The second point I want to make as a practical application is that it takes a village, that there are no lone rangers in kingdom work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And it's a great comfort to me to know that I'm not responsible to close the deal every time I talk to someone about the Lord. It is, it is just wrong to think that way, that that's the way it's going to be. A man by the name of, actually before I share that, I, I remember uh, when I was in Winnipeg Bible College today, it's called Providence. Uh, my friend Steve Skrepnik and I would go into Winnipeg to the University of Manitoba. We would walk around in the student union building and we would share the Lord. And I remember in those days, I I had a less informed view of evangelism, and I felt that I had to share one of the methodologies for spiritual laws, bridge illustration, Roman road, etc. And I remember feeling rather deflated and unsuccessful if I walked away and didn't get to share the whole deal. But of course, many times people weren't interested in hearing the whole deal. And I love the definition that a man by the name of Lon Allison of the Billy Graham Association has given what faith sharing is. This is worthy of remembering. Faith sharing is cooperating with God and others to lovingly bring a person one step closer to Christ. That's, that's the goal. Cooperating with God and others to lovingly bring a person one step closer to Christ. Do you know that there have been studies done that have shown that it takes on average eight to 10 people, 10 significant contacts to bring a person to faith. It is like a whole bunch of little streams that converge together to form the river of salvation in someone's life. 
And uh, we need to remember that, that we might just be one part of the puzzle in that life, just one conversation. I think I shared with you that about a year ago, I was on a flight, Pat and I were on a flight from Vancouver to Calgary. And I met a young man, I was sitting beside a young man. And when uh, he heard that I was a pastor, he literally rolled his eyes, he couldn't believe it. And he told me that in the past 24 hours, he had been on on two other flights. On the first one, he sat beside a chaplain. On the second one, he sat beside a bishop. And now he is sitting beside a pastor. And I said to him, uh, do you think maybe God's trying to tell you something? He kind of, he sort of jokingly said, yeah, do you think? Uh, obviously, there were many people that God was lining up for this young man. And we actually exchanged email and I directed him to visit Village Church in Vancouver, where uh, Chris Demonia, I know, is a pastor. And I know that this man went at least once to, the, to a service there. And so it takes a village. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom. Thirdly, you don't have to have all the answers if you're in a dialogue. Sometimes we're afraid to enter into conversation because we think we have to have all the answers. And if they ask questions that we don't have answers for, we think that, that somehow we're, we're giving God a bad name. And, uh, and the fact is we don't have all the answers and we don't need to have all the answers. If we see faith sharing as a dialogue with a friend or someone that God's led to us, we don't need to have all the answers. In fact, I have found that often I don't even know what to say until I am actually in the conversation. And I think that that's kind of the way Jesus was, that he didn't kind of have a formula. He, he had a dialogue with people. In fact, it's interesting how many times Jesus... Um, opened up things with questions. Jesus asked way more questions than he had answers for, or gave answers for, I should say. And I think we need to be comfortable with dialogue where we just say, you know, that's a good point. I'm not sure of the answer, but here's maybe, here's maybe one way of thinking about it. And so um, God can use us in those conversations. I, Pat and I had a conversation with a woman just this past week, not a believer, and she respects those who believe, but she admitted that she gets kind of angry at those who profess to believe but live a worse life than she does. And I was encouraging her not to look at the replicas, but but look at the real thing. And don't stumble over hypocrisy, but look at Jesus. And she said that so far that she has chosen a different path than Jesus, and it's the path of science. And yet, as we continued to converse and talk, I noticed that at one point she self-admitted and acknowledged that there is nothing in science that could answer why she feels guilty when she does something wrong. She did not grow up in a conservative, rigid Christian home that programmed her with some kind of moral code. She just feels guilty sometimes. And I asked her if she ever thought that it's because perhaps some questions only God can answer. So that was one step closer, perhaps, in that conversation. And we really didn't finish the conversation, but I hope that in the future we will have more conversation as God the Spirit works in her. And the fourth point I want to share is simply keep it personal. Talk about Jesus. Don't talk about Christianity or faith. Try to even avoid philosophy and 
arguing about theological or apologetical things. I think mainly sharing our faith should be about introducing people to our best friend, our loving Father, our merciful God. And if you're overflowing with that focus, then I think that you will also, it'll result in you sharing the idea that this person that you have been talking with recognizes their need to get right with the one that is truly their God. So four points. Number one, God is, God is the evangelist, not us. Number two, it takes a village. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom. Number three, you don't have to have all the answers in a dialogue. And number four, keep it personal. Talk about Jesus, not about Christendom or Christianity. Do you know the Matthew 28 passage does indeed have an imperative command to go and make disciples, but it doesn't end there. Jesus ends not with a command, but with a promise. And the promise is, for I am with you always to the very end of the age. The promise is that Jesus is with us. Literally, it means he's with us the whole of every day. <laughs> to the very end of the age. We go out in his name. We know that we stumble and fall. We know that, that we can sometimes even condemn ourselves for our lack of effort, for our carnality, for our, for our worldliness, for our unconcerned way about the world around us. And we can beat ourselves up. But you know, God is with you even when you're in that state that's not going to help you if you focus on your performance and your lack of ability to walk closely with God and to share with others the love of Jesus. You will not grow in being able to help share with others. Guilt-induced evangelism is not the way we want to go. But I want to encourage you to know that God is with you. God is with you. He loves you. Jesus is with you, he says, to the very end of the age. And in all your faltering steps, in all the sins that you even struggle with privately, in all the efforts that you try to make to lead someone to the Lord, in all the ways that you might pray and act in ways that, that point someone to Jesus, God is with you in that. Don't ever stop thinking otherwise. He is with you. And I think we just want to keep on going to God for others and then going to others for God. May the Lord encourage us together to be a kingdom people and to be a people that are going, baptizing, and teaching so that Jesus Christ might receive the praise that he deserves. Amen.